Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast, powered by Kasum Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Alice Stevenson. Alice is an entrepreneur, tech lawyer, and angel investor, passionate about all things inclusion and gender equality. Alice is a straight-talking and authentic individual. She founded her own firm, Stevenson Law, in 2017 with the aim of wishing to create a law firm that does things differently. Along with her amazing team, they're passionate and on a mission to build a forward-thinking, innovative law firm which puts people at the heart of everything they do. Their purpose is to protect their clients' interests and help them grow. So, a very big welcome, Alice. Hi, nice to be here. Pleasure to have you. So before we go through your amazing achievements and everything you've done to date, I just mentioned off air that we start with our customary icebreaker question on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit series Suits in terms of its reality? Hmm, well, I'm a, I'm a bit apprehensive about answering this, really, because I think you saw I did a recent LinkedIn post about this, and I sort of shattered a few people's illusions of the legal industry and, <laughs> and created quite a lot of disappointment, which I felt quite responsible for, because we're nothing like suits, unfortunately. It's a very poor representation of what my life is like. Yeah, I think I think certain people have, have given it anywhere between zero and five and anything plus five. I think they accept it's Hollywood. So I think based on your <laughs> recommendation there, we'll, we'll go with a solid zero. I think um, a zero. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alice, you've achieved so much, done so much, as we always like to. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your family background and your, your upbringing. I had a relatively, I, I guess you'd call it typical upbringing, middle class, private school, all the kind of stuff that you typically see in lawyers I think really. I was quite a sporty child, very much into my horse riding, did a little bit of sort of competing and really enjoyed all of that. So it was all all fairly kind of well normal I suppose, as normal as it can be really. But then things changed quite quickly for me when I was 18 and I became pregnant. And I was still at school at the time. So I'd done my GCSEs and I'd done really, really well. And then during my A levels I guess it's fair to say I sort of went off the rails a little bit, really. And I got pregnant and yeah, and things things became quite a lot harder and I had to grow up really, really quickly. I still took my A-levels, but I was seven months pregnant when I took my A-levels. I guess that was kind of my childhood over fairly quickly and, and on to the next challenge, really. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And on to the, the next challenge indeed. And that leads me to my next question of, did you always want to be a lawyer? God, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Why does everyone say that? So what did, you, what, what did you want to be? I think I had lots of crazy ideas about what I wanted to be, to be honest. Um, at one point, I think I wanted to be a doctor. I don't know why, to be honest. I think, you know, it was just one of those things that you just jump from one thing to the other and you don't really know what you're talking about because you don't really know what any of these jobs are like, really. But I was pretty adamant that I didn't want to be a lawyer because my dad was a lawyer and his job always looked really boring. So that was never on, on the potential list, really. I mean, my original career was in human resources and I, and I fell into that because I wanted to go to university, but I had a young child. She was one when I went to university and I was a bit restricted in what I could do, really, both in terms of the A-level results I had restricted the courses I could get onto. And also I needed something that was going to fit around me looking after Lydia. So 
I had to pick a course that didn't have a huge amount of contact time. So I did a course in sociology and HR management and ended up sort of working in HR for a little while after that. Okay, carry on that, that journey then. Talk us through your sort of journey and experiences prior to obviously founding um, Stevenson Law. I did the whole HR thing for a little while, but relatively quickly got a bit bored of it and realised that it wasn't really going to be what I wanted to do long term and decided at that point that I wanted to be a lawyer. I can never really explain why, to be honest. I think it just felt like a good idea at the time. And was something that I was determined that I was going to do. But one of the challenges I had was that I couldn't just give up work and go back to university. So I needed to go back and to do the GDL and the LPC. But I was working full time and I had my young daughter to support. So I couldn't just stop working and, and go back to university. So the only way that I could do it was by getting a training contract that also sponsored me to go back to university, which was a pretty big challenge, particularly because, as I've mentioned, I didn't have brilliant A-level results. And that's sort of still something that, that law firms take into account. So I just made my applications and, and hoped for the best. And I was put on the reserve list for a couple of law firms for their assessment days and then got the call from Bond Pierce, which is now Womble Bond Dickinson, saying that a space had become available on an assessment day and I was invited along. So it was the only assessment day that I got onto and I was offered I was offered the training contract on the back of that. So that was obviously brilliant news for me and meant that I could go back to the uni and do my studies. But at the same time, it was when the recession happened and when I was about to start my training contract, there were lots of trainees being deferred and, and it was a really difficult time. I managed to get onto my training contract without it being deferred. But when I got to the end of my training contract, there was a real lack of NQ jobs on the market and things weren't particularly good in the job market at that time. So it meant that I wasn't able to stay at the firm that I was that I trained at, which I was really disappointed about because I really enjoyed training there. But I had to go out into the, the big wide world and find an NQ job somewhere else, which I did. And I found something and it was fine. And I kind of, from there, moved around a few sort of private practice roles and trying to find, I think, my, my place, trying to carve out a career for myself. But after a little while of doing that, I, I just became increasingly disillusioned by the whole thing, to be honest. I wasn't particularly impressed with the way that law firms treat their employees, with the cultures that they create. And I never really felt like I fitted into any of them. So I kind of reached a bit of a point when I was three years qualified and I just decided that I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore because I just wasn't prepared to be treated in the way that I was being treated. So I left, handed my notice in at the law firm I was at, and I just left without having anything to go to. And I was planning on doing something else, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did some consultancy work while I kind of tried to figure that out. And the consultancy work just carried on really for about three years. And I did enjoy it. It was very different from the private practice experience I had. And I think I really benefited from having more experience in-house. So a lot of the consultancy work I did was working with in-house teams. And then I kind of realized that I didn't want to be a consultant for the rest of my life. And the next logical step just appeared to be 
starting my own law firm, which I know to lots of people sounds a bit crazy, really. And I think I was pregnant at the time. So maybe there was some hormones messing with my brain at the time. But I just decided that 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 was what I was going to do. And I was going to make it happen, really. Well, great. And so, you know, 2017, you take the plunge, you have founded your own firm and you're doing fantastically well. For people perhaps who may be thinking of setting up their own firm now or in the future, what does your role of sort of founder and CEO entail? And, and perhaps for our listeners, which areas of law do you specialize in? I think my role as founder and CEO is evolving all the time as the firm grows. I mean, at the early stages, I was doing absolutely everything. I was doing you know, most of the legal work. I was certainly supervising all of the legal work. And everything I was doing the, the marketing, the business development, the finance, just absolutely everything I was doing it. And then as the team grows, you sort of gradually are able to hand things to other people. But it takes quite a long time. And obviously finding the right people is really hard because, you know, you need people that you can trust. And it's not easy to, to find people that share your passions, share your vision, and that you sort of have that connection with when you're running your own business and also when you're trying to do something a little bit a little bit different as well so I mean it took about two years before I had enough of a a team around me that I could really take a day off properly with a sort of switching off but my initial legal work consisted of doing tech law so tech contracts general commercial contracts so outsourcing agreements services contracts things like that data protection questions and intellectual property as well. So all of those areas kind of knit together, really. Those have been the areas of law that I specialize in. I'm doing less and less of the day-to-day legal work now, and more and more of my time is focused on actually running and growing the business. But I quite enjoy that, actually. I think, you know, I've spent 13 years training and working as a lawyer, and I, I quite enjoy having a slightly different focus in my role now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're doing a fantastic job, it has to be said. And you have worked for, and we touched on it, you touched on it a bit before, but just to go a bit deeper, you've obviously worked for international law firms such as DAC Beechcraft. You've you've consulted to big brands such as EE. You know, what were some of the main differences you saw from working in those two different types of environments, perhaps for the listeners wanting to get a flavour for what it's like working as a, as a consultant versus obviously working in private practice? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think both experiences are really, really helpful because obviously when you're working in private practice, you're, you're dealing with clients and it's only when you're, you've actually got experience of working on the client side of the table that you realise how frustrating it can be to work with lawyers in private practice. If a junior lawyer's got an opportunity to go on secondment in-house or get some kind of exposure to working in-house, I thoroughly recommend it. I think it's really, really important. And actually, I think all private practice lawyers should should at some point have some experience working in-house because when you're sitting in a law firm and you're giving legal advice to clients, you don't understand what those clients are going through and how your advice is being received. And that's that's a real skill that you need to develop to, to be a really useful lawyer. I mean, one of the things that we really focus on at Stevenson Law is to try and make sure we're being as useful as possible so that the advice that we're giving to our clients is in the most useful form. And that in-house experience is really critical for that because 
in-house lawyers have their own pressures, have their own stakeholders that they're dealing with. And they're under quite a lot of a pressure to turn things around quite quickly. So if you're sending them a really long, detailed risk note with all of these comments and risks, then, you know, unless you're actually also saying what you think they should be doing, a lot of them are going to look at that and go, well, what do I do with this? Like, it, it's not really helpful for me. So I think having that understanding is really important. Yeah, and I think you've you've articulated that really, really well. And I think a lot of our, our listeners will get, get value from that. And, and one of your, your goals you, you've set is obviously to inspire young women to challenge the perceived barriers to success and see that anything is possible. Tell us more about that motivation and, and, and that goal. I mean, I think it probably stems from back when I was 18 and pregnant and having a baby and being told that that was going to be a huge barrier to my success and thinking at the time that it wasn't going to be. There was no reason why that needed to be the case. And I think, you know, from there on, I've been aware of barriers existing, but I've never really allowed them to stop me in any way. So, you know, when I decide that I want to start a law firm and I'm talking to people about that, then I get lots of comments. So you can't do that. The insurance is going to be too expensive. You're never going to be able to take a day off. You're not going to have any clients, all of these things. You know, people tell you why you can't do what you want to do. And if I'd listened to them, then I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be where I am now. So I think it's really important that people realize that, you know, these barriers that exist, either because other people are putting them up or you're putting them up, they're just basically problems that have to be solved. And there's always a solution to a problem. So one of the barriers that exists is um, the gender inequality that exists in the legal industry. So being a female lawyer is a barrier to a lot of things, to promotion, to getting paid properly. The research is out there that gender equality is still very much an issue in our industry and a barrier to our success. But that doesn't mean that you can't be successful. You can still overcome those barriers. You just need to be aware of them and you just need to tackle them head on, really. So I think... I just really want people to realize that you don't have to just see a problem in front of you and and stop. You can look at that problem, that barrier, and figure out a way to get around it. And that's definitely the the entrepreneurial skill set in, in in you coming out. So you and I guess that leads nicely onto I know you you're a co-founder of um, Inclusive Angels. Do you want to tell us more about about that? Uh, yeah, sure. So I mean, Inclusive Angels it's still in its very early stages. But the idea behind it is that we want to address some of the gender inequalities that exist in the angel investing scene. So at the moment, only 1% of venture capital money goes to female founders, which is really quite staggering. And there's a whole multitude of issues going on about why female founders are not getting the funding that they should be getting. And on the flip side of that, there's also a gender imbalance in the actual angel investment community because the majority of angel investors are men. So that kind of perpetuates the problem. And and one of the things that we're trying to do with inclusive angels is raise awareness of these issues, trying to break down some of the barriers that are preventing women from becoming angel investors, because actually we're finding that one of the primary reasons why women don't angel invest is 
is that they don't really know anything about it and they don't know where to go to find out about it themselves. And finding a network that you can go to that's inclusive and welcoming of women is actually harder than it really should be. So that's something that we're we're trying to tackle. It's obviously a massive problem, but hopefully we can sort of do a small bit to to make it a little bit better. And I'm very sure you you will. And and obviously you don't sit still. You're also a, an advisory board member for Underpinned. Again, tell us more about that. So Underpinned is one of the companies that I've actually personally invested in. So it's an early stage company. And what they're doing is creating a platform for freelancers who are looking to, to build their freelance careers. So it's a really interesting product. It's something that I think has got real legs, real potential. And it's got a founding team that I can really get behind and really support. And I think that's really, really important when you're working with early stage companies and you're working with founders is that actually the people behind those businesses are maybe more important than the actual business themselves, because what you're really buying into is their credibility, their passion, their vision. So I just basically help them to you know, achieve what they're trying to achieve. Good stuff. And uh... I think the other thing that I've um, I've noticed is you recently moved out to Amsterdam, I believe. So how are you finding life uh, out there? We've only been here for a couple of weeks now, but we are loving it. I mean, we spent quite a lot of time here before the move. So it's always been a place that we've loved spending time, but it feels quite different to be here as a resident and not a tourist anymore. Um, <laughs> but it's really great. I just love it here. The weather's lovely, which always makes me feel happier in any situation, to be honest. But it's just such a great city. And and we're really, really enjoying sort of exploring and finding our way around and trying not to get killed on our bikes. That's kind of number one priority, really. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. And lots of people will be interested because you've also become a, a registered European lawyer. Talk us through that process. Was it was it pretty arduous or was it straightforward? No, it was quite straightforward, really. It's because I moved to Amsterdam that I had to register so that I can practice UK law from Amsterdam. So it was just a registration process, really. But I think, you know, it's really useful to have that registration. And we're going to have um, a branch set up in the Netherlands of Stevenson Law as well, which from a sort of Brexit perspective, I think is really beneficial to the firm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you talked earlier about sort of, you know, switching to more sort of business builder um, type type role. And we, we're very much now in a content fuel society nowadays. And you have a great LinkedIn presence. I, I, for one, love following your content. But talk us through your sort of process for generating and capturing great ideas for, for your content. Um, I don't know if I really have a process, to be honest. I think... I'm definitely one of these people that I kind of I have to be in the right frame of mind to be able to create content. And that sort of generally means that I need a bit of a clear head to be able to think properly about it. And that can be a bit of a challenge when I've got young children and and a busy job and finding that sort of headspace to really be able to think of it can be quite hard sometimes. But generally, I find is if I create that sort of environment for myself, then I just have ideas. I'm, I'm definitely an ideas person and things do pop into my head. And then I also get ideas just from talking to people. 
things that just happen in my in my day to day. So, you know, I did a, a LinkedIn post recently on making mistakes. And that was just on the back of a mistake that was made that sort of prompted that. So I think ideas for content can just come up anywhere and everywhere, really. It's just turning them into content that's slightly harder. Yeah. And how much do you as a business owner of a law firm value the LinkedIn platform and, and all things social media for, for law firms in, in, in particular? I think it's really, really important. You know, it's something that we invest a lot in at Stevenson Law. We have a social media manager. So, you know, we've got a person actually dedicated to our social media marketing. I think it's really important because it's an opportunity to really showcase the business and the people in the business. I use it personally, and I think that that really helps both build my own personal brand, but also build the brand of the business. And it also just, I think, creates a little bit of of fun in the industry, which I think is really lacking. We think that we are the first UK law firm on TikTok. I'm a big fan of TikTok as well. I know what's going on at the moment. It's pretty pretty interesting, but I'm a big believer in that platform. Yeah, I, you know, I think we all just need a little bit of fun sometimes. We all just need to chill out a little bit. It can all get a little bit serious sometimes. So one of the things that we try and do with our social media is actually have a bit of fun, have a bit of a laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, and I love that. And it's great for, for sort of owners of law firms to come out saying that because I do think, you know, at times the legal industry can get very heavy. And of course, there's a lot of important stuff and, you know, things that people are doing. But sometimes, you know, got to protect people's mental health and, and things that are going on. And I think one of the things I wanted to ask is you, you, you're quoted sort of mentioning you get a lot of comments about your tattoos. As you say, people just don't expect a lawyer to have a full sleeve and they're generally surprised by this. What do you say to that? I don't really say anything to it, to be honest. I mean, you know, it, it's just the way that I am. For a very, very long time, I felt very self-conscious about my tattoos and I would go to meetings and I would cover them up. And I never felt confident enough to just have them there. So it's it's relatively recently that I've developed that confidence. And I don't really get negative comments about them, to be honest. I, I actually think it's a good thing because it helps me stand out and it helps other people feel a bit more confident about their tattoos. And I think if people have got problems with them, then they're not actually telling me about them and they can, you know, take their problems and, and go somewhere else. It, you know, it just, it doesn't mean anything to me really. Yeah. Well said. And and you also talk very passionately about law firms, some of them still using the, the sort of billable hour to measure lawyers' performance and, and, and you perhaps disagree with that. Tell us why. We've been recruiting quite a lot recently. And one of the questions that comes up quite a lot when we're interviewing lawyers is, what's my billable hours target going to be? And we don't have billable hours targets at Stevenson Law because I just think they're completely pointless. All they really measure is a lawyer's ability to use a time recording software. That's it. I get that there's a correlation between billable hours and revenue, but actually the revenue is what matters, not the billable hours and the efficiency and the profitability. So, For me, setting billable hours targets, it's just stupid. I don't see any justification for it. There are way better ways of measuring the performance of a lawyer. 
And what really matters is the output that that lawyer is generating and the value that they're generating, both in terms of the value that they are passing on to their clients and the profitability that they're generating for their employer. And looking at their billable hours is not a measure of that. There might be a correlation, but it's not a measure of that. And when lawyers are put under pressure to achieve billable hours targets, what happens is that lawyers just put down more time than they should be putting down because they feel like if they don't meet their targets, they're going to be punished in some way. And that's not the type of culture that you really want to be creating as a law firm. It's not what you need to be doing for your clients, because obviously then you're passing that inefficiency on to clients as well. So it really is just lose-lose, in my opinion. And I've seen a few sort of really toxic environments where law firms will actively sort of shame lawyers that aren't meeting their billable hours. And when lawyers don't have the control over the work that's on their desk because they're junior lawyers and they don't have any business development responsibilities, it's really not the lawyer's fault if you're not meeting your billable hours target. As long as you're doing all the work that you're being given, if the work's not there, the work's not there. So I just don't think that they should be using it, I think, is the bottom line. No, and I, I completely, completely agree with you. I, I respect what you're you're saying, and I think now times have moved on that we can we can move away from that model. So before we we wrap up, you're very busy. You're an entrepreneur. You're a lawyer. You're an investor. You're running your own business. You know the family. What do you do for, for downtime? You've mentioned you like to get onto your bikes, which sounds like a bit of a a bit of a challenge. Um, I, I, my sources tell me you're a crossfitting vegan. Is that correct? Maybe tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> I am a crossfitting vegan. Yeah. So. I am not, unfortunately, and I'm, I would very much like to be, I'm not one of one of these people that can really um, sort of sit down and meditate and do yoga. I'm not very good at switching off. So my way of stress relief is CrossFit and something that I really enjoy, actually. I've been doing it for just over two years now, and it's great fun. And I also think it it makes a big difference to my work. I think when you're training in the way that that CrossFit trains you, you see yourself getting stronger, you see yourself getting fitter, and you see that progress. And actually, that helps build your confidence. And that translates into your performance when you're working as well. So for me, it's it's all part and parcel of the same thing, really. So it definitely helps me. Good stuff. And thanks so much for sharing that. You actually inspired me. I knew we were doing this recording today. I actually did one of my longest runs I've done in a while of 15k before today because I knew that you were sort of very passionate about CrossFit and all things fitness. So I thought I needed to up my game. So you <laughs> subconsciously inspired me pre-recording. So if people want to follow you or get in touch with the firm, uh, do you want to give a shout out maybe to your website and your relevant social media? We'll share all the links with the recording. But is there any shout outs you'd like to give? Uh, well, I mean, I'm probably best found on LinkedIn. Um, you can just search my name and Stevenson Law again on on LinkedIn or stevenson.law. Great stuff. Well, thanks a million, Alice. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I'm sure all our listeners found that truly inspiring and informative. So wishing you all involved with Stevenson Law. Lots of continued success, but for now, over and out. Thanks, Rob.